um, just when you had a, a challenge, and, and, and there's power in letter writing. You see movies about Vietnam War and World War II, and these letters arrived, and these soldiers who were on the wars, and they were on the forefront, get the letter, and it gives them hope, and it gives them joy, and it reminds them who they are in the midst of battle. There was power in letter writing. And most of the New Testament is made up of letters written by a father given to the church who loved the church. We are looking at the book of Ephesians, and it's a book written by a man sitting in prison. He's sitting in Rome in prison, not exactly sitting in the lap of luxury, not exactly sitting at a VDE cafe, having a double cappuccino, writing to his mates in Ephesus. He's sitting in prison under arrest with chains around his ankles, and he's saying, how can I encourage the church? Because Jesus is still king, Jesus is still on his throne, and the kingdom is still coming. He has such a revelation of God that he, he uses the one vehicle he had because some of you will be shocked they never had email. Seriously. It was a tough day. Not only was he in prison, he had no email. But he wanted to write to his friends. You see, 10 years before, he went to a real place called Ephesus, and we spoke about it last, last week. It was a real place where real people walked, real people did business, real people had homes, real people got on with their lives. It was a real place. And he went there with two friends called Priscilla and Aquila who were business people. And the three of these people went into a city that were worshiping foreign idols, foreign gods, all sorts of foreign religions as it was a port city much like our city where people came from all over the world and they converged there and you had this melting pot of cultures and religions and all kinds of spirituality. They just arrived there. The Spirit of God has gripped their hearts, turned them from a Jesus, a Jesus follower, persecutor, to a lover of Jesus. He begins to proclaim the gospel. He goes to Antioch and he goes on this whole trip and he ends up in a place called Ephesus. And he preaches the gospel. Then he leaves and he comes back. A few months later, and his friends are still there, Priscilla and Aquila, and for two years, they both work and preach the gospel. For two years. And in that two years, what gets birth is believers come to, to following Christ. The church gets birthed in power. And the story begins to unfold. And for two years, he just preaches and preaches and preaches. Then he says, it's my time to go. Leaves Priscilla and Aquila, leaves Timothy in this place called Ephesus. And a whole journey ensues he goes on a whole journey and ends up in prison and 10 years later he says i remember my friends in ephesus we are talking about a man with deep deep love in his heart often we read the bible and we think well we're going to read about jesus so when people get saved we say read matthew mark luke and john because that's about jesus the whole bible is about jesus Jesus was in Genesis, he's in Deuteronomy, he's in all those tough books in the middle, he's in the whole Bible, he's the center of the Bible, he's the main story, the main character of every act, it's Jesus. And Jesus has so gripped this story, so gripped this man's heart for a little place called Ephesus that he sits in prison and pens down a letter to encourage them. It's got to grip our hearts as we understand that I said it this morning, much of the church is triumphalistic living and, and God is only with you when you are living at the top of the hill. Then why would he write, I'm with you in the valleys. Why would he write Psalm 23? Why would he give us a gospel that allows us to walk through? Why would he say that I'm going to lift up the valleys and I'm going to bring down the mountains so that his glory can come? Because he wants to lift up the valleys. He wants people who are in the midst of the valley of a season in their life can write a letter to encourage others. 
Maybe you're sitting here tonight and maybe you feel like you're in a prison, finances, relationships, past history. Maybe you're in part of a prison. You think, what have I got to offer? Everything. Because you've got Jesus, who's the center of the whole Bible, the whole of history, and every story. It's Jesus. So this book we're reading here, and this letter written to a people, is from a man who just loves Jesus and has faith in that Jesus. We're going to read some scripture tonight. If you're here this morning, we're going to do it again. Can we turn to Ephesians 1, please? And um, I put it up on the screen because there are different versions, so it can get a little confusing. Mine is an NIV 1984 version. There is a later version. This one was God-inspired. No, I'm joking. You're a very tough crowd tonight. I, I, need to, I feel like I need to tell a joke. There was an Irishman in English. No, I won't do that. We're going to read the Bible. I can see a lot of people are mourning the sharks last, last night. I'm with you. But in our valley, God will lift us up. This is the time to write a letter to the Bill supporters and encourage them. Okay, Ephesians 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Paul writes to Timothy in 1, in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and teaching. Devote yourselves. Give yourself to that consistently. There's power in the public reading of Scripture. And sometimes in church we use Scriptures to justify our points and we put our four points down and then we go find the Scripture that we want to relate. And I think we've just got to come under the Word. Why are we going to read the Word? Is because actually the Word comes over us. Let the words, let the power of a letter written over 2,000 years ago come upon our lives, come over our hearts and lead us. Show us Jesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with, the pleasure, with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purported and purposed in Christ. Purported is also a word. It's not in this chapter, but it is a word. Purposed in Christ. To put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, how many times do we see that? In him, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for his praise, for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith 
in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is a man sitting in prison, sitting in chains, saying, I've never stopped thanking God for you. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The Word of God is beautiful. His incomparably great power. Incomparably great power. I just look at that scripture and, and the words just, just breathe life into me. He predestined us to be adopted. Only someone who's been through an adoption process, someone who lives with the understanding of adoption can fully grasp what it is to be loved by someone who takes you and that the Father took us on and set us as children, gave us full rights at His table. The scripture is unbelievably beautiful. So we come in this, this is a series and we've called it But God. A series through the book of Ephesians. And it's, it's pulled out of Ephesians 2 verse 11 where it says, remember, he writes this thing. He says, therefore remember, Ephesians 2 verse 11, that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world, but God in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This whole series hangs on but God. See then, he says twice in that scripture, he says, remember, remember that you were separated, remember that you were excluded, remember. It's because we have a tendency to forget we forget. We forget that moment when we came broken and stenching of all sorts of past sin and issues. We approach the throne of grace. We forget the smell that was upon us. We forget that he took his cloak and he covered us with his blood. We forget that he washed us. We forget. So a man sitting in prison with love for his heart says, church, remember that great love. Don't forget it. Don't lay it aside. And we approach and we come to this gospel where it changes and contradicts everything of the way we live life. The gospel is totally different. And we like to paint a picture sometimes, or the church does. It's not that different. All we do is meet a bit, and we get together, we hang out, we have life group, but it's not that different. It's not going to ask that much of you, and it's a lie, and we're lying to people. The gospel contradicts everything, and at the root of the very contradiction is something called the cross of Jesus. The greatest contradiction, the greatest challenge, it's scandalous in nature. It contradicts everything. 
So the way we do our relationships, oh, have you hurt me? I for an eye. And I said it this morning, the first thing that happens when Adam and Eve leave the garden, the first thing, the first thing we see in the Bible is brother kills brother. When we're out of the presence of God, our relationships go out of kilter. When this relationship is not in order, these relationships are chaos. So brothers steal and defraud brothers and, and, and the biggest fights in families are when inheritances come up for the offering. And chaos erupts. And God says, I'm going to turn all of that on its head. Why am I going to, I'm going to give my son to those who least deserve it. So that when relationships are out of kilter, we can get them back into kilter because his kingdom comes. When we say the kingdom of God comes, we are saying something totally different to this world. A kingdom completely foreign to what this world would understand is breaking in and it's going to look completely different. It's radically, radically important. See, we live lives, and, and if you're here this morning, I am covering some of the same stuff from this morning, just so we get it, just so we're on the same track together as different communities. But it's radically important we understand that we grow up, and we grow up with an understanding that everything is conditional. Love is conditional. Because you heard it from your parents. When you're good, we will. When you're not bad, we will. And everything we learn and everything that forms us and shapes us is conditional. And we do it to our kids. Without knowing, we've got to understand the gospel's got to get inside of us and change everything. Because his love, the gospel love, is not conditional. And it doesn't make sense. And it breaks in with these two powerful words, but God. See, I was broken and I was suffered. He says, yes, you were separated. He says, you were outside. You were excluded. You had no hope. You had no God. He says that. And then these two words, but God. It's amazing. And it's this promise that nothing is impossible from God. John Piper put it this way. But God, when he walked by my open grave, instead of turning away from the strength, the stench, he said to his son, I want that mess alive. He looks at you and me in our brokenness and sin and stains and everything. He looks at us in our open grave because we're already dead. We might be living life on this earth, but we're dead spiritually. He looks at us and says, I want that mess alive. Will you die for him? The father asks the son, will you die for him? And he says, yes, that's how I got saved and that's how you got saved and that's how everyone gets saved. He breaks into our mess and he brings us to life. And no one is excluded from that equation. And we, ha we even take those lenses, we look at people and say, but that person came to the church in, in a good state. No one comes to Christ in a good state. Everyone comes broken. Everyone comes excluded. Everyone comes separated. Everyone comes with no hope. Everyone. We come to Jesus. Not just in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We come to Jesus under this letter written to a people in Ephesus. We come to Jesus. It's got to change everything. And we're going to start this morning because we understand behind all of this, we, we, so, we, get, we get loud and we shout about the Great Commission, but before the Great Commission comes the Great Command, love God and love each other. It establishes the, bound, the, the ground rules for Christianity. We're going to come and we're just going to look at the very first two verses. It's going to take us a little while. We're not going to look at every verse, but tonight we're just going to look at it because it breaks open and we see that Paul writes. He says, Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus. And we spoke last week about to the saints in Ephesus. Are they perfect? No. Are they the perfect church? No. They're a good church. They're doing well. But he writes to the saints. He doesn't write to the sinners in Ephesus. He writes to the the set-apart ones, the holy ones. And then it says these amazing words, grace and peace to you from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not some polite greeting. Paul establishes, and right at the start of of, of this letter, he puts the gospel. Grace and peace are not a nice greeting. In the times of Paul and in this day, they would have said something like this, but they would have used a different word. It would have been charian, which means greetings. Greetings and peace to you. They would have said, greetings and peace to you. Hello, Don. Greetings and peace to you, Don. Stay awake, Don. Stay with me, buddy. Stay with me. Are you okay? Help him. Or bring him alive. Alive. <laughs> but it's greetings and peace to you. And Paul changes that word from charian to charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. Grace and peace to you. And positions the gospel right at the very forefront of this letter. And when you position the gospel there, everything changes. And the focus is taken off about what you can bring. And the focus is put completely on the unmerited blessings that come from Jesus. The unmerited favor, the unmerited love, the unmerited grace that gets poured out over us. He positions it right at the start of this amazing book. And he says, grace and peace to you. We're just going to look at those two words tonight. Grace and peace. Grace is a word that as I grew up became a political word. It became a word that we are this and we're not this. We are a grace church or we're not a grace church. And it became this this dirty word in church because I'm being honest. We're preachers, we're either grace preachers or they're not grace preachers. I honestly don't know how you preach Jesus without preaching grace because Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. Grace is Jesus. And as I read the word of God, I can take the word grace and replace it with Jesus because it's every bit of Jesus. It's a, it's, it's a defining moment. It's not some abstract power that is just out there. Oh, grace, grace to you, brother. And we use these Christian words and we just throw them around. When Paul writes grace and peace to you and he's sitting in prison, he's writing it from the very, very depths of his soul with a great revelation of what Christ did, brought him freedom even though he sits in chains. He is free, more free than a man walking on the streets outside that prison. And he writes, with that grace, that same grace that exists and sets my heart on fire, that grace to you. Grace is not a political word. It's not an identity of who the church is. It is a revelation of Jesus. That's all it is. And there's just, it speaks about through Ephesians, the riches of his grace. We cannot fathom the depths of the riches of his grace. You cannot use the American monetary control system and their reserve banks to try fathom. Trillions and billions could never compare. So we use other analogies and we try, we look at at the Niagara Falls that just keep pouring and pouring and you try to dam them up and they're just going to keep pouring and pouring. It's still too small. And we try count and we use the number of the stars and we say it's like the grace or or we write songs and say if grace was an ocean, beautiful song but grace is bigger than all of it there is no limit to his grace just some points about grace grace firstly is top down not bottom up what do i mean by that 
It says when Jesus on that cross, in that moment of, of freedom, in that moment where all eternity changed, that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And we just read that from the top to the bottom. What does that mean? No, God did it. See, grace offends us because grace says God did it. I'm saved. I'm going to go to heaven. How? Because I worked hard? No. Because I, I gave? No. Because I said prayers? No. Because I taught my children to say the Lord's Prayer? No. You're purely going to go to heaven. You're purely going to enter into eternity with Christ because of one thing, grace, that is Jesus and a blood poured on that cross. That's it. And he did it from the top down. The father initiated said, see that smelly mess, son. I want you to go. Heaven initiated this process. And it's different to every other religion on this world that is completely top up. Say your prayers. Do these things. Please your God. Serve your God. Buy idols to your God. Every other religion is top up. Every other one. And if you do enough, you'll get the right place in heaven. If you do enough, you'll get in and you'll make that selected number. And the gospel breaks in and turns all of that on its head and says, you actually cannot do it. He does it. And it's this grace is completely the overflow of God's self-sufficiency. He did it. We need him. Remember. When a man sitting in prison writes a letter to people to encourage them, and he says twice, remember, we have to take cognizance of that word and say, I'm going to remember. Grace is love that seeks you when you have nothing to give in return. Do so you want to know what grace is? It's Jesus. He's the one who goes to a woman at a well. She's got nothing to give him. She's had five husbands. She's on her sixth, and life is chaos. And Jesus seeks her out. Jesus encounters her in her lowest point, in the middle of the day. No one went to the well in the middle of the day. It was too hot. But she went there because she was ostracized from her community. Jesus encounters her. And he goes to her not because she's got anything for him, but he's got everything for her. And he promises her life, abundant life, water of life, river of life. And our relationships are so conditional. So we look at people, and I like Don, because Don's a lot like me, and if I spend time with Don, he's going to encourage me. And there's conditions to our relationships. And the gospel turns it all on its head. It says, actually, I have a relationship with Don because of Jesus, and that's it. And Jesus establishes this relationship. Jesus gives the terms. Jesus gives the grace to walk this relationship out. That at times he will be part of my healing as he reveals Jesus to me. And at times I'll be part of his healing. But it's not on condition that he's going to play his part. Can we live with the revelation of that? That there are going to be relationships in your life. That Jesus will place in your life for you to give. That's why we're in community. You know why we're not on our own? And we just walk this thing with Jesus? Because you cannot understand the fullness of Jesus when you stand on your own out in the world. We are placed in community, in church, because these things have got to be worked out. Grace is indiscriminate compassion. I just collected some of these terms over the while. It's indiscriminate compassion. We know Jesus. says We love saying, Jesus with eyes like fire. But you know who Jesus was? When he encountered the woman, and she had the issue of blood for 12 years, and he turned around and said, who was that? Who took the power from him? And he sees this woman who's had pain for 12 years. Eyes like doves compassion but it's indiscriminate 
It wasn't predetermined. It wasn't eight disciples organized that one. It was just, can we live with indiscriminate compassion? Grace makes no demands, it just gives. And remember, wherever I say grace, you can just put Jesus. Jesus makes no demands, he just gives. He asks one thing, love him, respond to him. And then he just gives. He pours. It seems to always give to the wrong people. You look at Jesus, who did Jesus choose? He chose the non-religious of the day. He chose the prostitutes. He chose Levi the tax collector. He even chose those who had mixed breeds at the time, which was a scandal of its day. And he reaches out to those people. Somehow grace reaches out to the wrong people. See, when you hang around Jesus, you're going to end up in the wrong crowd. Just telling you. That's how mates with Gabe. And, and it's this, and, and you know what? The religious will struggle with it. And, and inside of every one of us, there is a religious little voice wanting to come out. Inside of all of us. We even hear all this good thing say, surely not, surely Mark, there's a limitation to this. Surely when you talk about the riches of this grace, you've got to cap it. You've got to come alongside that and put all the disclaimers. It's been tried for centuries. And there are things. He teaches us. Grace is the very thing that empowers us to live life and to please Him. You cannot please God without grace. Grace is recklessly general, generous and doesn't keep score. It's got nothing to do with earning. It's got nothing to do with merit. Nothing. And you know why it's so offensive? You know why it's so confusing? Then you know why that actually the church struggles to get it? And we need voices like Terry Virgo just to come and massage. And when a man gets, after 50 years of ministry, he chooses one thing to preach all around the world, and that's grace. You've got to know there's something important that the church needs to hear. There's something important that we've got to hear. is because grace is not from this world. It's from God. It's from heaven. It's of a different environment, a different atmosphere. So we struggle with it. It's amazing. And Jesus reveals this to us so powerfully. If you want to know how he establishes it, he says in Romans 5 verse 8, but God, well he doesn't say it, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we don't struggle with that, but then we struggle with how he can reach out. You know who Jesus came for? He came for the guy on the cross next to him who was still reeking of booze from the party the night before, and says, Jesus, can I come with you to eternity? And the grace of God reaches out to that man. It's a radical thing. Grace is scandalous. This is a quote from a guy named Brennan Manning. My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends, a grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck towards the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs and or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, please remember me and assures him, you bet. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate compassion. 
It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such, will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff and with all our might try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. And there are so many truths there. There are so many understandings, so many beautiful. That a grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request. Please remember me. And Paul writes to Ephesians, remember. Remember your Savior. Remember that you were separate. Remember that even with your millions in the bank and all the logs that you were holding on while you were still floating in the, in the rivers of despair, and you thought you were better than the other guy because you had something to hold on to, you were still separated from God. I know I'm working this point. I know that it's big. In the Bible, 1 Corinthians, it says, we, we, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and Gentiles. That word stumbling block comes from a Greek root called scandalon. It's the word we get scandalous from. This grace is scandalous to both the Jew and the Gentile, to both the religious and the non-religious. It's scandalous even in the church. It's like, how could Christ be that good? Surely we've got to put limitations on people. Surely we've got to say, you've got to do this. And I hit an issue a couple of months ago, and I spoke about smoking, and I said, uh, we, we have to change our perspective around smoking. We've got to get, get comfortable with not having to react every time because the church come, because the Bible doesn't say you cannot. You know that? And I know it's a contentious issue. Let me tell you, I don't think it's good for you. In fact, I know it's not good for you. I'm asthmatic. As a kid, I know what it's like to not be able to breathe. It's not good for you. But we've got to get our perspective that we can still love and we can understand that the grace of God is scandalous and doesn't care if someone smokes. And I told the guys the other night, one of the first times I came down to the church, I visited outside the front of the church. There was a, please don't smoke your son. And I asked them to take it down. Because the grace of God is scandalous. And I would rather have smokers smoking in this building than out there not encountering the love of God. And, and I'm just using that as a very poor example because there's a million of those things. We put these conditions about what a Christian looks like, what someone who's been saved looks like, and it's all a crock. Because a Christian looks like someone who's been washed by the blood of Jesus. That's it. Nothing else. <laughs> we need more grace. It's top down. So we have grace... And it says, he writes, grace and peace to you. So what is peace? See, if, if, if grace is, is the root of the gospel, at the, the very root of the gospel, there is no gospel without grace. Peace is the fruit. And it's peace in many ways. It's peace with God. And this is the first peace we get. He establishes us at peace with God. You see, before we were excluded, we were separated. All that language was upon us. Then the blood of Jesus washes me. He puts me at peace with God and nothing can change that status. Nothing. The day the blood of Jesus washes me clean, the, the day he establishes me to spend eternity with him, nothing can change that status ever. That's peace with God. But he buys more peace than that. He says, the peace of God which is different to the peace with God. This is this. The peace of God is the daily walking. It's the peace, not that we just know, but we, we live with peace. You know, 
when, when, um, when peace comes upon a situation, it's like he, Philip, Paul deals with it with the Philippians. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, just heavenly language, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So it's in the midst of a storm, in the midst of prison, the peace of God. Yes, your child is sick, the peace of God. The world's falling apart. Economies are going to a crock. The peace of God. Why am I saying crock? I really have no idea. I've never said crock in like years. Just enough. Is it a good word? It's a weird word. But I've got to say, we get peace with God. Nothing can establish it. But the peace of God can get stolen. And we've got to draw on the resource of grace, who is Jesus, come back to that place to get the peace of God. When a man can write a letter from prison... When a man can establish that after this guy who writes this letter has been whipped, he's been stoned, he's been chased out of cities, he's been accused of all sorts of things, he has the peace of God amidst it all, and he writes to encourage the church. We've got to understand we can access that by accessing Jesus. So we get the peace with God. Nothing can change. The peace of God that gets moved around David lost it and got it and lost it and got it. And he comes back to God. He says, I need you, Jesus. And it says, in the midst of all of it, God lifts his head above his enemies, his enemies, the peace of God. That's good. And when we have relation with God, we get relation with man. We get peace with man. Ephesians 2 verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier. Peace breaks in, and all the things that keep us apart, prejudice, Pride, elitism, classism, all these things that want to divide. God says, I poured my grace over that to break that down. The dividing wall. And Jesus comes with the hammer of grace and smashes it. Just smashes them out of our lives. If you want to walk a Christian life, there's going to be moments. He's going to get in your heart. He's going to put your heart on a wooden tray and beat it. <laughs> and so sometimes we wonder, why do people cry? In the presence of God. Why, why is that? That's weird. Now God's getting to the deepest, darkest things in our hearts. And he's setting us free by getting it out of us. So we celebrate what God is doing in people's hearts. Because he's establishing them for the purposes of his kingdom. In his grace. When he does that in our hearts, it is his love that's doing it. Not anger. So God sends a man named Paul to write a letter from prison to encourage the church of Ephesus and to encourage life changes church at this time. And as these two words hang over us, but God. Maybe, maybe you're a foreigner and you haven't got a passport and it's a challenge, but God. Maybe you've got a checkered past like Brad who's coming to do the marriage course, but God. Who would have thought one day as he was sitting in prison in Westville Prison that he'd be coming to Cape Town to do a marriage course? Probably not him, but God. I'm finished. Can I pray for us? This is, uh, honestly, we should be able to talk about grace for days without having to put a million disclaimers out because we have to understand it's incredibly powerful. Incredibly, incredibly powerful. And Paul writes, and he writes Ephesians to the saints in Ephesus. Why? Because he's reminding them who they are He's dealing with what they're believing that will impact how they live it out. 
You want your children to live in freedom? Keep taking them to the gospel, revealing Jesus to them and telling them who they are. And my boy, on the way to church, I look in the pool, there are two bikes at the bottom of the pool. Not one, two metal bikes that rust in a salt chlorinated pool. And everything inside of me is cross. And yes, you need to discipline, but then you need to remind why you discipline. You have to take them aside and say, boy, do you know you're a good boy? You stood. You're a good boy. You're a kind boy. You look after them, yes, and you remind us, and Jesus deals with us the same way. Don, I created you. I put unique things inside of you. I gave you this amazing lady as a wife. And he reminds us, as we spend time in his word, of who we are, and as he establishes us for life. Jesus, we come today, and we just drink of your goodness, your grace, your mercy. I know it's been a longer evening than usual tonight, but I just pray these truths would rip out the lies of the enemy inside of us. I pray rip it out of our thinking where we, we somehow think it's conditional. We somehow think that even how loud we sing to you, somehow you care. Honestly. And I pray rip that out of me, God. There is a legalist inside of me. Rip it out, God. That I could be free, that I could be used by you to set others free, God. And I pray in this church, establish a healthy understanding, a kingdom, a Jesus understanding of grace. That the most broken and the most prideful can walk in the same place, encounter the same source of life that is Jesus, encounter grace, and find freedom and ultimately peace. And peace like a river. Just stay in this place for a second. When I was 11 years old, I um, went with a family and a little girl of 11, and she was 11, we walked to the top of a waterfall. Her family were going to meet us at the top. And my family at the bottom, she decided to wash her feet 30 meters up from the waterfall edge. She slipped and fell in the stream. When over the waterfall, fell 13 stories, landed on a rock and died. The only reason I didn't run in after is a policewoman tackled me as I was running into the water. I don't understand these things. But at that funeral... At 11 years old, I got the greatest theology I'll ever know. We sang a song, When peace like a river attendeth my way. And the mother got up at this funeral and said, This is what I know. My God doesn't make mistakes. And I will worship Him. I want that knowledge. I want that believing. I want that faith. I want that revelation of Jesus. Where sometimes it's definitely not going to make sense. Because I cannot try and make sense of that situation. But I know that woman still worships Jesus powerfully today. I know her family as well. I know the fruit of her life 30, 20 years later. I want that peace. I want you, Jesus. Be with us, God. Be upon every life. I don't know why I tell that story, but I pray it just establishes some. That we can live with mystery but that we would know grace. Amen. We do love you. We, um, if you're a visitor, I know I see these faces. I don't know. It really is wonderful to have you. Uh, we are here every week. <laughs> but we have the men's camp coming up. We have a thing on Thursday, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Come be a part of life, and let's do this together. Bless you.